If debit is your go-to card, Discover thinks it's time you get rewarded too. So check out Discover Cashback Debit, a game-changing checking account with cashback on everyday debit card purchases. That's right. Cashback isn't just for credit cards anymore. Whether it's a movie date, flea market find, or midday latte, you can start earning cashback. And did I mention there are no fees, period? Check out transaction eligibility and terms at discover.com slash cashback debit. Discover Bank, member FDIC. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Welcome to Hollywood and Levine. I am Ken Levine, your podcast host. Well, after last week's episode, how many of you signed up for a carnival cruise, I wonder? Let me see. Show of hands. Mm, not many of you. Okay. Well, this week and next, I have a great guest, somebody I've been trying to get on this podcast for quite some time. I'm very honored to have Nicholas Meyer with me, and he is uh, an author, a director. How about this for for resume? Nominated for Academy Award, three Emmy Awards, and as a director among the pictures that he has made, as they say in the industry, are a number of Star Trek movies, including, in my estimation, the very best Star Trek movie, number two, The Wrath of Khan. And he is also the uncredited writer of that movie in every way, shape or form. I think that is the best Star Trek movie. He got his original claim to fame by writing a novel called 7% Solution in 1974 that was on the New York Times bestseller list for 40 weeks. 40 weeks. And he also directed a, a little comedy called Volunteers. So we'll talk about the process of writing and directing. Along the way, you'll see that he's been involved in a number of things that you probably have seen, and if you haven't, you should. So this week and next, my guest, Nicholas Meyer, right here on Hollywood and Levine. Well, so many things to talk about. Let's go back to the beginning. You went to the University of Iowa. What did you want to be since you wound up being so many different things? What ultimately was your original goal? Um, I wanted to make movies. I I thought originally when I was a kid, um, I think I wanted to be an actor. And I was not a good actor. You, you hear about them, but you seldom meet them. Um, <laughs> I, I was a bad actor, but... In the process of discovering that I was a bad actor, which I discovered because directors were always yelling at me, um, I discovered that there were such things as directors. And they were usually sitting in the 
strolls with a cup of coffee and I thought, oh, directors get to have the coffee and sit down and do the yelling. So I thought I'd rather do that. Um, the thing about the writing, people say, when did you decide to become a writer? And I was, I never decided any such thing. Writing was just something that I always did from the time I was literally about five years old. I would make up stories and, and tell my dad and he would write them down. And then he said, listen, I'm tired of being your photographer. You, you better learn to write these yourself. So writing was a kind of a safe place for me. And that's what I did. But it but it's it was never uh, an ambition sort of set by itself, like I want to be an actor, I want to be the president. Um, and it just kind of came along for the ride. And when I went to the University of Iowa, I wound up majoring in in theater uh, with a minor in history. And film just sort of was coming along. And while I was at the university, I, I stumbled into the job of being the movie reviewer for the Iowa City Daily Iowan, which is a very good, uh, or at least it was, very good uh, college paper. It's actually the first paper to endorse Obama. Um, God bless and, it. And and Hillary Clinton made fun and said, oh, he got an endorsement from our college paper. Um, so uh, that's sort of my my somewhat amorphous or diffuse background of ambitions and then they all kind of coalesced it was it was about writing it was about directing it was about theater and ultimately it was about film which i was always nuts about from the beginning well the first thing that i remember of yours was the novel seven percent solution which we'll talk about now did that come shortly after you graduated was that like your debut novel or had you had four unpublished novels before that or seven? Yeah, there were a lot. When I was graduated from the university shortly after the Civil War in, um, what was it, 1968 is when I left Iowa, um, I had a choice between heading west to Los Angeles or heading east to New York. I'd never heard anything good about L.A., so I, I scurried home and spent the next three years at various jobs um, trying to write. I tried to write novels and I tried to write screenplays. I think uh, nothing of it was particularly distinguished. Uh, I did get a job uh, working in the publicity department at Paramount Pictures. And so I I wound up um, being the unit publicist on a movie that was turned out to be a big hit called Love Story. And I wrote a little paperback book about the making of that movie uh, and that I did get published. And I converted my advance, which I think was 3000 bucks, into traveler's checks and stashed them in the trunk of my car along with my typewriter and drove west finally to seek my fortune. What I'd heard about Los Angeles was all from people who had come home not liking Los <laughs> Angeles. What I didn't realize is that people who liked Los Angeles 
went out there and stayed. So I <laughs> I, I drove cross country in the in the summer of uh, 1971, I believe. Um, I had never been here, and I didn't know anyone. And uh, I went from there. Is I didn't even know it was by the water. That's the state of my gothic ignorance. So talk about 7% Solution. How did that come about? It's For those who don't know, uh, Sherlock Holmes deals with cocaine addiction and consults Sigmund Freud. How did you come up with that? And did you need clearance from the Doyle estate? Uh, well, the second question is easier to answer than the first. Yes, I had to get uh, permission from the Doyle estate. That is no longer necessary. Sherlock Holmes right. is mm-hmm. now, now in public domain. But back then, I, I did have to deal with them, and it was no 7% solution, I can tell you. <laughs> um, the background to the book is is involved. Um, my dad gave me the Sherlock Holmes, the complete Sherlock Holmes stories uh, when I was about 11. And there are 60 of them, uh, 56 novellas and uh, 56 short stories and four novellas. And I gobbled them all up. And and uh, there's a reason why you refer to your extreme youth as an impressionable age. I think things make a big impression on you when you're a kid, whether it's works of art or people or experiences, things that just stay with you forever. And Sherlock Holmes stayed with me forever. And I used to write my little imitations. I'm not alone in this. Everybody wants more stories. They they, they get very depressed when you get to the end of those 60 stories. The other strand of uh, origin here is that people would say to me in high school, oh, your old man's a shrink. Is he a Freudian? And I didn't know. So I said, Papa, are you a Freudian? And he said, it's a question. And I said, why is that? And he said, because it's no more possible to discuss the history of psychoanalysis and not begin with Sigmund Freud than it is to discuss the history of the discovery of uh, the Western Hemisphere by Europeans and not start with Columbus or the Vikings, whichever you prefer, but to suppose that nothing has happened since the Vikings came to America. That's to be pretty rigid, pretty doctrinaire. Patient comes to see me. I listen to what they say. I listen to how they say it. I'm very curious as to what they do not say. I'm interested. Are they on time? What are they wearing? What's their body language? I am, in short, searching for clues from them as to why they are not happy. And I said, gee, Pop, that that sounds like detective work. And he thought about it. He said, well, it it is kind of like detective work. And then I sort of realized who my father had always reminded me of. He reminded me of Sherlock Holmes because he'd say things at the dinner table like, what do you think about a guy who always shows up five minutes late? And we'd all take turns speculating about, you know, what was going on. So it was, yes, it's not an accident that he gave me the Holmes stories to read. And then somewhere along the line, I did learn that Sigmund Freud loved Sherlock Holmes. That was his bedtime reading. And when you read the Sigmund Freud case histories, 
sometimes you could easily swear that you were reading Watson writing. And at one point he even says, Freud, I followed the labyrinth of her mind, Sherlock Holmes-like, until it led me to, and then that's, I found myself wondering, this is, you know, an incremental process because I'm not the sharpest knife in the drawer. Um, how much did Arthur Conan Doyle know about the life and writing of Sigmund Freud and vice versa? And the first thing you learn is, well, they're both doctors. And then they both um, died in the same town. And then within nine years of each other. And Sherlock Holmes is a cocaine addict. And so for a time was Sigmund Freud. And I thought, wow, this is interesting. And then you learn that Arthur Conan Doyle, uh, Freud got interested in cocaine, introduced to it. Uh, with two eye doctors named Koenigstein and Curler when they used cocaine as an anesthetic during eye surgery. And Arthur Conan Doyle studied ophthalmology for six months in Vienna. And I thought, well, this is just too many coincidences. And eventually it coalesced. Um, there was a Writers Guild strike. I was living in Los Angeles. I'd written a couple of TV movies and suddenly you weren't allowed to write screenplays. And the woman with whom I was then living said, well, now you can write your Holmes Freud book that you keep yammering about. And she was right. So I did. Were you surprised that it was such a hit? Flabbergasted. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I learned all the wrong lessons from it. You know, after that, I just have never done anything except to please myself. And uh, instead of trying to second guess a lot of people that I never met. And, you know, it's like, would I tell you a joke that I didn't think was funny? And the answer is no. If I don't think it's funny, I'll never get the laugh. Um, so I was I was completely flabbergasted. I when I finished writing the book, I showed it to my agent my representatives on the east coast and the lady said well there's really no point in my reading this book because i've never read any arthur conan doyle so how could i tell if it was any good and i was way younger than i had a very very short fuse and i said well putting aside the fact that you call yourself a literary agent and you've <laughs> never read any Arthur Conan Doyle and you know if it if it if it depends on another book it's a flop and th this is a good line of reasoning except she'd hung up after I said you call yourself a literary agent um <laughs> so I the, the longer version of the story and I'm beginning to think you're sorry you asked no was that was that I took it under my arm my manuscript flew to New York which was pissing rain on the at the time I was there. And I knew one person in the publishing business. And so I went to Macmillan and I asked to see him. And I was informed as I stood dripping in the lobby that he didn't work there anymore. It had never occurred to me to call ahead. And or, or I didn't even understand that that people made lateral moves. And I, I said, like, is he still in publishing? 
and the very nice receptionist said, let me let me check here. So he had moved to another house and I said, um, can I look at your phone book? And so I'm dripping all over her phone book. <laughs> and I, then I went to the next place and I and I found this guy that I had known. And he was sort of surprised to see me here. We hadn't been in touch in a, several years. And I, I informed him, you know, holding this manila envelope under my arm um, that I've written a novel. And he said, oh, uh, he said, well, this. This isn't really a fiction house, he said. I have to tell you, I've proposed five novels here and they've all been turned down. And I said, look. I'm out of options. I'm leaving you the thing and I'm flying home, which is what I did. And then five days later, he called me up and he said, well, this one they'll publish. And I I said, really? He said, oh, yeah, absolutely. So I thought about this and I thought, well, I'm fucked if that agency is going to represent, you know, make 10% negotiating a contract on a book they hadn't that they'd refused to read so i called this guy that i had met at a dinner uh in this is in la and uh, i said and we'd had this conversation i'd been in la about 15 minutes and i said what do you do and he said well i'm an entertainment lawyer and i said what is that and he explained it to me and i said so if I ever, you know, needed a lawyer, would you be my lawyer? He said, oh, sure. So I called him up. There's a guy named Tom Pollock. And I said, um, Tom, I, I think I've sold this book. I don't want these people making 10% on something that they had nothing to do with. He said, oh, that's fine. We'll get a release of your literary works, which they granted without batting an eyelid. And he said, I'll represent your book from now on. Let me read it. So I got him a copy and he called me back and he said, forget this guy, forget this house. It's a nonfiction house. Your book will get lost. And I said, but, 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 you know, this is like the money <laughs> right. in the middle right. of the writer's guild strike. And I said, listen, I really, he said, trust me, trust me, just sit tight. And so he then thereafter sold the book to Harcourt Brace Jovanovich for rather more money. Um, and then I got into this whole legal dance of death with the Conan Doyle estate and Harcourt Brace wasn't really doing, they weren't lifting a finger to help me. And at that point, I started to get a series of phone calls from the guy who edited my love story paperback book, who was now at E.P. Dutton. And someone had slipped him a copy of my manuscript. And um, so I said, um, and he said, you know, I, I want to publish your, your book. And I said, gee, I can't. I have a contract with with uh, Harcourt Brace. And he said, well, I'll give you a thousand dollars more. He was a very quiet person. I, I wish he were alive because he was a wonderful man and a very able novelist himself. He wrote some terrific novels. Um his name was Yuri Jerjeviks. And every week that I turned him down, he would come back with another thousand dollars. And eventually I said to 
Harcourt Brace, listen, guys, we're not getting anywhere here. Um, do you mind if I take my novel back? And they said, I'll absolutely have it back. And so that's how I wound up at E.P. Dutton. And then it became the number one best-selling novel in the United States for 40 weeks. Wow. So what happened to you? What What is that like when all of a sudden you become the flavor of the month? Well, thank God I was 28 years old and not 24 when it happened, because I was old enough, I think, not to kid myself. I didn't believe that I had written the great American novel. I knew I hadn't done that. I What I understood, and I think it's a fair assessment, and I, and I don't, by the way, basically that artists are the best judges of their own work. But I think it's fair to describe the 7% solution as an enormously high-spirited, uh, really clever uh, divertisement that was brought off very well. Um, is it is it profound? No, it's not profound. Um, but it is enormous fun. I think that's fair. Yeah, uh, I, and I I also think it was it's fair to say that that suddenly becoming famous for the 15 minutes or whatever uh, i enjoyed every minute of it i thought oh this is great and it couldn't have happened to a nicer guy see la's not that bad is it <laughs> well 50 years later <laughs> i i think i'm coming around i want to step back for a second and talk about your your process because that's always fascinates me how different writers have different processes and your books all have very clever and genius plots and things that need to be set up. I can't imagine that you're one of those writers that just sits down and types chapter one and then just goes. It seems to me you probably spend a lot of time planning and outlining your books. Is that true? Well, it's interesting about asking people about their process. Um, I certainly do more writing in my head while I'm walking or, or doing things. Um, when people ask writers how they, you know, work, I think at best you get anecdotes and at, and at worst you, you get sort of lies in a way, because the truth is that for many of us past a certain point, you don't really know how it happens. Um, I refer you to Plato, in which the Oracle of Delphi tells Socrates that he's the wisest man in Greece. And Socrates thinks, well, that, that can't be right. So all I have to do to disprove the Oracle is to talk to somebody wiser than I. And then he says, I spoke to every member of Greek society and I finally got around to the poets. And I think he probably means artists in general. And they probably were all guys when he was talking. And uh, he said, I thought these people who write 
and paint and sculpt or whatever so insightfully about the human condition will prove to be wiser than me. And he said, imagine my surprise when I found out that the writers were the stupidest people I spoke to. <laughs> they, they were like children. They, they were infantile, except when they did their art, at which point they appeared to go into a kind of trance during which time they take dictation from God. And this they call inspiration. And then they come out of it and they go back to being jerks again. Now, I'm not, you know, exclusively nominating myself in the jerk category, but I do think that a lot of the creative stuff that I do involves going into a kind of trance-like state where you look up and it's five hours later, or you reread it, you know, five years later, and you can't remember having done it. I I did this? I don't know. Um, when I was in Iowa and part of the writer's workshop, all of that, I was 18 years old or 17, and Max Schulman came to speak at the writer's at workshop. And he was like the most famous person any of us had ever seen. Your listeners may not recall, but he wrote Rally Around the Flag Boys, and I think he created Dobie Gillis. He and... did indeed. So he was yeah. a famous, famous guy. And somebody said to him, um, Mr. Shulman, do you use an outline when you write? And he said, absolutely. I would no more start a novel without an outline than I would start a car trip without a triple a map you know highlighted the whole route and i remember being in the back of the room and having maybe one of the first original thoughts that i ever had in my life maybe it was the last original thought i ever had i said to myself it it sounds like a boring trip everything all planned and supposing you're tooling down the road and you see something off to the side that looks cool does that mean we can't get off the road and, and see what that is. And so I my process, which is maybe a little bit like fiddling with a Rubik's Cube, is I maybe start with a central idea. Sherlock Holmes meets Sigmund Freud. Um, and then I try to justify how that would work how it could happen and it's a little bit like writing a screenplay i want to know well what's the first shot um and somewhere along the line i i may figure out more or less where this is going to end up and it may start off again with sort of abstract ideas which is that okay sherlock holmes is far gone on cocaine which we know that's in the in the original stories uh watson very concerned he's a doctor um he reads an article in a medical journal the, the lancet that's a big medical journal uh by a viennese doctor who talks about getting patients off cocaine or talks about cocaine watson decides he needs to get holmes to see Freud, how is he going to do that? Well, 
fill that in later. And once he, um, here's what's going to happen. There, uh, Freud is going to work to cure Holmes's cocaine addiction, and somewhere along the line, they're going to combine forces on a mystery, whatever that mystery is. And in the course of that mystery, an intellectual exchange is going to take place. Freud is going to cure Holmes's cocaine addiction, and Holmes is going to introduce Freud to deductive reasoning, which sets him on the path to psychoanalysis. That's the idea. And the rest is kind of saying, well, how does that work in practical terms? And in the case of Sherlock Holmes and in the case of Sigmund Freud, these guys have chronologies. One is fictitious and the other one is, is actual. But, you know, how can you make the dates dovetail so that this is plausible for both parties and so on? A lot of uh, nuts and bolts. And in the course of it, you know, you're walking around with notebooks and you take walks and you and you write things down or you have dreams. My book was finished. It was gone to the press. And I woke up and two characters in my novel were playing tennis. And I, it, you know how likely or plausible dreams feel. Who was playing tennis in my book? Was it Holmes and Freud? Was it Freud and Watson? Was it Watson and Holmes? I didn't, but th then I kind of doped it out and, and wrote two more pages, called my editor in New York. I said, you don't get to say this a lot. Stop the presses, because I, I I got an idea, something else to put in, and I put it in, and then later when I wrote the screenplay of the movie, I also found a way to make that scene pay off in a way that was kind of uh, cool for audiences, delightful to sort of justify it. But I mean that came that that was not part of any outline. So you talked about the movie. It it became a movie. Starring Nicole Williamson, <laughs> dealing with that guy must have been a dream. And Robert Duvall and Lawrence Olivier, pretty good for your first movie, Nick. Um, <laughs> well, it was my first feature. I'd done some television movies. I also, to specify, I didn't direct the movie. I wrote the screenplay. Herb Ross was the director, um, and it was it was great fun. I wanted to. I was on the set the whole time because I, I really wanted to uh, watch a movie being made so that I if I ever got to fulfill my own uh, ambition in that department, then I could have some background in all of that, a professional thing. So I was watching very closely. And Herb Ross was enormously uh, inclusive in in keeping me on the set and and literally sort of filming what I wrote with very few exceptions. Um, some of them were improvements and some of them I can't stand, but it's a pretty good movie. It's a pretty smart movie. Um, Nicole Williamson, who certainly had a reputation as being a, a difficult uh, personality, difficult, but he wasn't on this film i think he was enjoying the 
sort of lighthearted aspects of doing this. Um, so he uh, on his best behavior. Uh, he was. I think he was on his best behavior. Um, I don't, you know, recall. I know that Oswald Morris, who's one of the great cinematographers of all time, um, was the DP, and the incredible Ken Adam, who designed Barry Lyndon and seven James Bond movies, and was subsequently knighted. I think he's the only production designer to be knighted. Was the production designer and went on to do other movies for me later. Here's a very interesting history, Ken. He was the only German Jewish fighter pilot ace in the RAF. It's quite a story. Wow. So from that, you did get your opportunity to direct. Talk about time after time. Well, with the 7% solution being a big hit, um, both as a as a novel and as a movie, I heard from a lot of people that I had never heard from. I, I had an English teacher who who uh, used to refer to me as Nicholas the Unlucky in high school. And he wrote and said what a pleasure it was to have me in his class, which was a revelation because I'd never been in his class. <laughs> he, he, he was... Um, he only had the A students, and I didn't fall into that category. But he remembered it differently. Well, among the people that that uh, contacted me was um, a guy I had known and been friends with at the University of Iowa, uh, whose name is Carl Alexander. And Carl contacted me and said, I'm writing a novel that was kind of inspired by the 7% solution. I wonder... If I have 65 pages uh, and an outline. Would you read it and give me your thoughts? And in those days, I had some time. And so I said, sure. So I read his novel, Sherlock Holmes builds, uh, sorry, H.G. Uh, Wells builds a, a, a time machine. And Jack the Ripper escapes to the future in it. Um, I read these 65 pages and I gave him my thoughts. Um, and then I was prepared to think no more about it, but I couldn't stop thinking about it because it was such a cool idea. I never would have had this idea in a gazillion years, but I would lie awake and think things like, gee, it's much more a cinematic idea than a literary idea. Hell, all you'd need is two guys in Victorian outfits running around the modern world and everything they would experience would be sci-fi. So it wouldn't even be very expensive. And, you know, I went on and on and on. And again, I'm a slow thinker and a slow reader, I might add. Uh, so I don't know, was it one month or two months later? I can't remember when I woke up in the middle of the night and say, fuck, man, option his story and write your own screenplay. Which is what I did. I optioned his what what there was of his story. And then and I'm not known for strategic thinking, 
I'm not sure I'm known for thinking, but anyway, I certainly not strategic thinking. I wrote the screenplay, and when it was finished, I gave it to him, and I said, here, help yourself. Take anything you want, because I thought if it helps him get his book published, then that's going to be good for the movie, if there is a movie. Then I went to the most reputable film producer guy that I know, a wonderful man, Herb Jaffe, who produced The Wind and the Lion and Who Will Stop the Rain, and really good guy. And I said, I want to direct this movie. Do you, do you want to um, produce it? And I went out and had a Chinese egg roll while he read it, and he said, absolutely. So, And, and I should back up and say that when the 7% solution was optioned for the movies, I said, I will only sell you the book on condition that I write the screenplay. And this time I said, I will only sell you the screenplay on condition that I direct the movie. And the fact that I had been nominated for an Oscar for the 7% solution, that kind of gave me sort of street cred. Mm-hmm. And, that, and that's how I was given permission to direct what became time after time a great great movie okay there's part one of my two-part interview with nicholas meyer next week we get into his first day directing also directing other movies like for instance volunteers we'll talk about that and a whole lot more nicholas meyer next week on hollywood and levine And our thanks, as always, to Adam and Susie Meister-Butler, to Howard Hoffman, Bruce and Jason Miller. And if you want to write me for any reason, you certainly may. HollywoodLevine at Outlook.com is my email address. Again, that is HollywoodLevine at Outlook.com. And you can follow me on Instagram, Hollywood and Levine, where I showcase a number of my cartoons. Okay, come back next week for part two. Thanks so much for listening. Have a good week. See you soon. Hollywood and the fine.